Welcome to episode seven of our Teach Like a Pirate Sacred Reading Podcast. I am Nicole Huff. And I'm Sylvia Ellison. And we are so excited today to start a new spiritual reading practice, and that is marginalia. So marginalia is something that comes again from the tradition of monks in that before printing presses, if you were reading a text, it was a text that was passed down to you. It was probably not originally yours because books were so expensive. And if you were reading and studying a text, you wrote in the margins your own thoughts as you worked through what was going on in the book, like every college student ever who's just highlighted an entire book. Um, And the more you practice writing in the margins of books, the better at it you get so that it's not an entire book highlighted, but some really salient points and how you connect to them and you discuss it in the margins. And then that book is sacred and really, really expensive before the printing press. And so when I die, it gets given to the next person who comes to the monastery and is in my place. And they have the original work as sacred, but they also have all of the study that I have done my whole life with that book through my margin notes so that I live on and their understanding is not just the original written work, but also someone else's living proof of that sacred text in their own life. So it sounds like a silent discussion. (coughs) Like not only am I reading it and having my own thoughts, I get to see somebody else's thoughts and compare my thoughts to theirs. Do I agree or disagree? Does it add to my understanding? And this process lives today, both in silent discussion in classrooms, but it also lives largely in our poorer communities. Mm. Because where books are still a luxury, where people don't just buy them and then they can be thrown away or whatever, if it's just for me, when a book is a luxury item and it's expensive, it's not just for me. Right. I let a whole bunch of people read my copy. And often books from the library get marked up too. <laughs> right. And they get passed on. So marginalia is something we see in a lot of communities where books are still seen as a luxury or as sacred. So what you guys haven't seen is that um, Nicole and I have switched books now. And I have hers. And she has my copy. Mm-hmm. And we are going to kind of study each other's margin notes or marginalia. Mm-hmm. Just for the record, Nicole makes a lot more margin <laughs> notes than I do. Mine are very symbolic, so it's a practice I will need to adjust okay. in future readings for this. But what I'm excited about is seeing the brain child across the table from me on paper. Because I get to read your thoughts Yes, and still have a conversation with you about which I love. Thank you. And yes, I do write a lot in the margins and I do that because it is what keeps me active and focused. I have Mm -hmm. a brain that can tend to wonder. I am whole brained and I do a hundred things at once. Mm -hmm. And if I put a pencil in my hand, I always tell my students that I'm, I think better with a pencil in my hand. It's a way to focus. And so Mm -hmm. I, I write and I underline and make notes to stay present. So we've each looked through each other's margin notes and picked one or two that we want to have a discussion about, that we want to say, I noticed you wrote and and here's what I think and here's what you said and I want to know more about that. So 
where do we want to start? I think we just start from the beginning of Third Circle because we're mm-hmm. going to go through several chapters now. Um, I think our planning, we decided that we wanted to spend the bulk of our episodes on that acronym to understand the philosophy. Sure. And so now we're going to chunk pieces of the text more. So we're actually, if you have the book in front of you, are on page 75, and we're going to go through page 101. This is a large chunk, but we're talking now about the the how. How do we sure. craft these engaging lessons based on our acceptance mm-hmm. and understanding of the PIRATE acronym? These philosophy. are all the things from Ask and Analyze. These are the different questions right. that he asks himself as he plans right. lessons. And some of them will work for some lessons and some for others. And so some of these chapters are very short. And sometimes the question will apply fabulously to a lesson and sometimes it won't, which is why we've chunked this into a section so that there's something for everyone still. So what I liked on page 76, at the very beginning, and you marked it too, which I thought was real cool, but I love your note on this. He talks about a lot of times we, we know our content, we have made a choice about the technique or the method we want kids to use, but we've given little to no thought about our presentation, mm-hmm. right? And the comment that you wrote was, it's not the end product, but the tool for helping students process and think. And I think that, I love that because I think too oftentimes teachers get caught up in that end product and they forget about the beginning or they get caught up in what kids are going to do mm-hmm. and they forget about what I need to do to get them to that point. Right. Yeah. And And specifically that that works with the think pair share and the jigsaw and all of those teaching methods he's talking about. A graphic organizer is not the end product of my lesson. Right. The thinking that kids did and the conclusion that they come to is the point. And I had an organizer to help them think through and get to a point. Right. So turning in the graphic organizer is just their thoughts along the way. It's not the end product. Right. And I think that how I present the information is equally as important as what kids do in the end. Mm -hmm. Because I may be enthusiastic about the end product. I definitely have a passion for what they're doing. And I may do all those other things but if I haven't thought about what will engage my students right and and let's be true you marked that and I wanted to talk about it you talked about uh on page 77 and 78 the extended metaphor about the raw steak on a plate oh my gosh it doesn't matter if it is the best cut of meat or the most important salient piece of content that students so need to understand if you give them raw steak on a plate and say, eat it, they're not going to. And those that do are going to hate it. And I think for me, that was even more powerful because I, to be honest, like my steak medium well to well done. Oh, no, I am rare. <laughs> exactly. But so the, it's the, still not just a steak. Right. You got to put salt and pepper on it. And you still have to have that char on the outside that, yes, causes cancer, but is the way that it tastes best. And, you know, I, I want it to be juicy and tender on the inside but I still need flavors. Right. Right. And I think for me that analogy is powerful because of that. But it also, once again, I go back to, I love his word pictures. He has painted a picture that every teacher can sit before a table and go, oh my gosh, I do not want to eat that. And mm-hmm. think about undercooked chicken. 
Ugh. I mean, that's an even... I could just see that. Like, if I... It's slimy. If I don't plan well, I'm, I'm, I'm serving my children, my students undercooked chicken. Not only is it detestable in appearance and taste, but it could also, in that case extreme, get them sick. Yeah. Right? It could turn them off of learning yes. forever. What you wrote here is, wow, this is what lesson planning should be. <laughs> And that it's a great analogy. And I agree that, you know, we have to plan. And that planning is that that step that so often, we all plan lessons. We all look and see what we're going to teach the next day. And we think about it right up until we teach. And sometimes we make our best alterations in the car in the morning. And nobody is doubting that. However, if I do not spend some real time cleaning my house before the barbecue and if I do not spend some real time deciding what goes with that steak or chicken then I end up serving something that no one's going to eat or like I have to make sure that when I give them something I have put in the thought and planning and time to season in order to make this work okay the next one I noticed is on page 80, and the text actually says, I don't make decisions about all those things for each lesson. And that's what he said that we were thinking, and then he ends that quote with saying, actually, you do. Oh, yes, I marked this one, too. If you gave no thought to the matter, then what's really going on is that you've abdicated responsible for that decision. In your notes, you said, it tells kids you don't want to put in that much effort, so why should they put in that much effort? Or why should they put in more effort? And um, I love your thoughts in this. They're different than mine. But I love that because I'd never thought about the students thinking of, wow, if you've half planned this lesson, then I should only half plan. I only have to do the work. And I don't think any teacher ever walks into a, a lesson hoping kids will only do 50% of the work. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I loved your If you haven't changed your bulletin board since August. If you have a word wall up on the side of your room, but you stopped adding words to it after your second big vocabulary thing and you never use them in class, why are kids going to? Great examples. I, in my classroom, I, I, have set, I have little sections around the room that I, I change the decor to go with the season. Mm-hmm. Right. So like at the beginning of the year, I will have like an Americana or beginning of the school year theme to go with Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Then we go to fall because I miss Halloween, like just or if I admit I get Halloween, I miss Thanksgiving. So I love just going to fall mm-hmm. and putting out little things for Halloween and then taking them out quickly to go because I love Thanksgiving. And then you get the winter holidays. So and then Valentine's Day and then mm-hmm. springtime. So I think that. In our classroom, I think I love the idea of my word wall changing, you know, my my um, my anchor charts, rotating them, right? Because mm-hmm. they're supposed to be supports for when the kids need them, not supports all year mm-hmm. long, right? Um, and I have been guilty of having oh. a bulletin board that is there, like, all year long. It's happened. Correct. But I wonder what that made students think. I wonder if they mm. thought I just didn't care about that. Right, and if they if it was worth putting up a word wall, I, and I go back to that one because mm-hmm. how many times have I seen a word wall that could have been masterful teaching tool, 
that mm-hmm. in the beginning of the year has the same 10 words as the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and I've none, done that too. <laughs> and none have been added. None have been taken away. It's just like those are the 10 words that we know we should learn, but we don't need to focus on because mm-hmm. we're just doing it to check. I did it. Right. And then the years where it wasn't so much about a wall, but rather about the vocabulary that I knew kids would use. Somebody reframed this for me, and it was very powerful. That it wasn't about the static thing on the wall, but that every day or every new unit or new piece of text, I could write on my board as kids were coming in three or four four words that were important in the text Mm -hmm. and were in the piece of text we were going to use and that I wanted to make sure kids knew. If I wrote those on the board at the beginning of the unit and I made an effort to use them like throughout the week and then maybe do something for kids. I'm guilty of giving candy because we all work for food. (laughs) Um, Giving kids candy for using one of those words correctly in a sentence with a context clue. Uh, that I'd give them candy for. And those words change. And when somebody reframed that for me as that's like a lasting way to get kids to use the word 10 times or 11 makes a habit. Or you right. know, if we use it, then it's liable to move to long-term memory. As you were talking, I remember a teacher at a high school. I, was, I didn't evaluate him, but I had a connection that I asked him permission just to sit and watch him teach because I just wanted to part of his, yeah. And he had this mess on the front board. And um, as we were working, I started realizing that when he, like he never lowered his vocabulary for his students. Mm -hmm. He spoke with big words that even I would have to look up sometimes. But what he did do is when he used a word, he was so in tune. It's like a radar that when he used a word that he saw kids didn't get, he turned around and wrote it on the board. And then he would put a context with it so that they would understand it. And they would know oh. what he was... Like, he was almost defining it in his conversation. It's like a right? mind map or a word wall kind of on his mind. It was just a, a word wall, yeah. yeah. But I remember in this day, there were so many words out there. And he used this new word. And it's not... It wasn't the words that were important to me. It's the technique. That in the middle of it, he, he's like, oh, I got a new word. And he turned around to look... And there was, like, no space to write any words because it was full of these big <laughs> words. Right? And he just went, okay, and, and took his hand and just swiped two or three times to erase this giant white spot. And then he wrote the new word up. And I asked him later why he did that. He goes, well, if they're still up there, that means we should know those words by now. Or, and if we don't know mm-hmm. them, they weren't as important as the word that we're learning right now. And so I thought, what a great reminder... Of how we create new right. learning. And that and he took he gave thought to that matter. Like he he thought about that whole practice. It wasn't right? just a random I need somewhere to write this, I'm gonna wipe. He had thought about it. And he didn't abdicate that decision to anybody else, but he owned how he was going to how he was going to justify his use of his own vernacular, even though it was so far more elevated than his students. But instead of Instead of changing, he just taught it to them. Correct. And he he took responsibility for that decision. And you have that underlined too. If you gave no thought to the matter, then what's really going on is that you've abdicated responsibility for that decision. And I asked you about it because you had a star. And you told me that 
if you don't think about it, others do, and shared with me that in transitions, if you don't think about how kids are going to move and transition and how you're going to get them from one task to another, then when you just tell them to do it and a couple of kids get off task and do something not productive and maybe a little mischievous because they're teenagers, you cannot turn around and get mad at them for not doing the next task. You didn't give them a method. And so they chose. And you may not like their decision, but you gave the power of that decision to them. And that was your reading of this, is that it's about who has the power in the decision making and if you don't make it, they will. And you may not always right. agree with their decision. And, and that's think, powerful. And I don't think we have to have the ultimate control over that. It's a matter even of giving choice, mm-hmm. you know, and giving time restraints. Um, making those conscientious decisions to place kids in a position to be responsible for their time and materials. There's right. a countdown clock. I'm not just saying, I'm going to give you one minute to get to blah, 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 or 30 seconds to get this stuff out. When you say that, you have to also put the clock off because so many of us do not have a good concept of time. So I was thinking a lot about this. And of course, my four-year-old doesn't have one yet. She's still working on that. She'll say things like, it was such a long time ago on Father's Day. Well, it was like three days ago when you said that. So wasn't really that long ago. And, you know, she still comes to the table to eat and says, is this breakfast? And I'm like, no, this is dinner. <laughs> because she just doesn't right. have a concept of what's going on in the day. And I realize as well that I'll tell my husband something is going to take me 10 minutes or a half hour. Or what, and I am often very wrong on those amounts of time. So I'm not really all that much better at it. If I want my kids to do something and be ready for our next activity in five minutes. I need a countdown timer that they can see because they don't know what five minutes feels like. Right. Because if you don't put that sense of urgency on them, they will take control of the decision. They will. And drag that five minutes into 15. And they may think it's only been five. Mm -hmm. But if they can't read your analog clock, which is common... And you've told them they can't have their cell phones and they're actually respecting that and not checking their watch all the time or their their clock all the time. Then if you don't have a countdown up there for them, you've given them a time frame, but no real means to be successful. Let's give them the tools for that. So I love that idea that he's talking about this presentation hooks, right, Mm -hmm. in this whole section. And then he goes to the types of hooks. So uh, he gives a crash course in presentation hooks, which I kind of like. I I love the idea that we have to plan for this. Mm -hmm. The success is based on our willingness to do that and to search for student information. You actually made a comment in here that, that connects to our evaluation tool. The Danielson rubric starts with, knowledge of content and pedagogy and then followed with knowledge of students and those Mm -hmm. two are the first part because only hand in hand does your lesson planning work right yeah I there are days there are always stories of how teachers will say well some days what I taught was that you need to sit in your seat today because the content I really wanted to get to I couldn't get to because I was doing these maintenance things and uh, yes that happens and that happens to the best of us but that's 
the content and the pedagogy and the rapport, if I have the relationship with my kids, they're more likely to give me a little bit of grace even on their worst days. And we can all figure out how to move forward because something happened in their life. And so they are not in a place where they can just sit down and be still. They have all that nervous energy. If I have the relationship, I can figure that out and we can eventually move forward. So diving deeper, his next two sections, which we're going to try to handle in this in this podcast, is the idea of movement mm-hmm. and the idea of the arts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in movement, you started out, but your notes are bookended. They're really mm-hmm. the ones I chose. Um, the first one is all your little notes around his lists on page 88. And then at the bottom, I love this comment. You write, these experiences, and he's talking about games, gestures, simulations, mm-hmm. just getting kids out of their desks. Right? Henry Box Brown and getting kids into the box. Yes. But he said, these experiences are fun and give kids understanding. There's an and, right? Mm-hmm. And memory of an event. So the so then they are ready for higher level discussions and seminars. I love that because so oftentimes teachers won't do won't plan these exotic events mm-hmm. of movement, and they don't realize the value of creating an experience. When I do professional learning, when I train, when I design professional learnings, my goal is to provide an experience that teachers will remember, mm-hmm. right? We have to do the lesson because if I just talk you through the lesson, you're not going to go teach it yourself. And that lesson has to be a momentous, a memory building time so that mm-hmm. teachers will remember what they did. And how they felt. To, right, connected to what I wanted them to learn, mm-hmm. right? So making choices, I, I remember doing this one. I put three, I found at Dollar Tree, you can find these cheap wine bottles. Right. Or they look like wine bottles. And I found three red ones. And so I put liquid in all three of them. I put um, tea in one, water in one, and lemonade in one. Okay. So I had these three colors. And I put labeled them ABC. And I basically told the teachers, which one would you choose? And so the first time it was based on the look of the bottle. And then I poured them into cups and didn't tell them what was in it. And, and so the kid, the teachers... Teachers were funny. Some of them chose the the clear one because, well, it's vodka. Or the, <laughs> the brown one because it's, you know, bourbon or scotch or something. The yellow one, they were, eh, I'm not so sure about that one. But then when I said, what if I told you that this one was water, tea, and castor oil, right? Which one would you want to drink? So it was... Not the castor oil. Exactly. <laughs> and in, 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 in child rearing, I always called it poison. And the idea was that... When we make choices, we lead our kids to make the best choice by giving them information, mm-hmm. right? And we would always, if that was poison or castor oil, we would never want them to take, teach that. But if we say, no, don't drink that, then rebellion might cause them to want to drink it. You have to explain why. But if we get them to that point where they can go, this could kill me or make me very sick, I don't want to drink that. Mm, the why behind right. the what? So I think those experiences are what he's talking about here. And I think that's... when. When we have a common experience, mm-hmm. a rich experience, like the the people in the box, mm-hmm. was that fun? Yes. Was it problem solving? Yes. Was it social emotional learning? Absolutely. But now, let's think let's talk about, about the history, the moment in history yeah. that we wanted to refer to, and we have a still, we have a common foundational piece of conversation that we mm-hmm. all experience the same thing, so that we can talk a same language. Sure, we could start with. Okay, was it fun to try to fit in there? Yes. Now, but was it comfortable? 
I was okay at first. If I had left you in there for a while, how would you feel? How would you feel if I had, if somebody else had been picking up and carrying this around and you didn't for sure know where you were because it was sealed and you had to spend multiple days in there and you, okay, now why would it, why would you be willing to do that? Under what circumstances would that be a better idea than just continuing outside of the box? Right. So now we can get to a discussion of the impact of what was going on and and how slavery must have felt for that to be worth it. Right. It's and that's where you, the the value of these experiences come as you connect it to the standards. Mm-hmm. So imagine and you brought up that U.S. history piece. If kids experienced that. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that when they're sitting on that high-stakes testing and, of course, exam, that they're going to remember, when it comes to slavery, they're going to remember that experience mm-hmm. and all of the information you taught them around that. Right? And Five Steps to a Five, those famous AP books that talk about doing well on the test and how to, how to write a DBQ, document-based question, or any sort of free response on a, a high-level test like that. It talks about the fact that you have to discuss the documents and this and what, you, but that there is an opportunity for bringing in your own extra knowledge. And every one of his kids could probably reference right. Henry Box Brown by full name, even if most of us don't remember who that was, but they remember getting into that box, so they remember his name. And I'm sure his lesson after that connected all the dots so that they connected it to the standard that he wanted them to learn. Right. right? It wasn't um, just a fun experience. Right. It got them to thinking. Well, and I talked about your, your comments bookended. So on the back of page 93, you hand wrote all these ideas that you did. Mm. And I love Or that, want to do. Or want to do, right? <laughs> so I'm going to read. You had about walking. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. I was like, walking? Why walking? But then I read it all, and it's all about poetry. Um, poetry is not my strength, although I've become a, a lover of it. Like... On teaching kids to write poetry as a writing coach, maybe that's my thing. But I love this write the walk towards nature for rules of a haiku, a limerick stop, um, a name acrostic stop, extended metaphor stop. So I'm I'm getting this idea that you're taking kids on a nature walk, and I've already planted mm-hmm. things. The I tour guide it. he talked about doing yes. one of those, and I wanted to too with his trail of tears. Yes, um, and truthfully, that idea spawns from you. Oh, because I know <laughs> that years ago you used to do walk and talks with your kids that whatever was going on, you had questions that you wanted them to discuss and our brain works better when it's getting oxygen and glucose and when we're moving and we're not just sitting still and that engages kids. So you would teach them how to walk quietly from your classroom to the commons where they weren't going to disturb people or, you yep. know, away from the hall, the small hallway with all the classroom doors into kind of a more open center mm-hmm. area. And there is a, uh, our commons area is indoors and it has um, a tile outline so that most of the tiles are white, but there's kind of a little border of red that's thick enough that you would have them walk on that border and you would pace them out. Okay, you two start, now you two start, now you, and okay, everybody, we're talking about the first question. It is this, go. And then after a couple laps, here's the next question. You taught me that, and I thought that was great. And here's another extension of it in in Dave Burgess's work. So what's so funny is I was reading all this. 
that's I remember I think I wrote comes that from one. you. That's exciting. <laughs> oh, the times of learning. I was in a conversation on Twitter recently, and this author, his name is John Meehan, and I apologize if I butchered that name, but he wrote a book called Adrenaline Rush, and mm-hmm. it's not adrenaline like adrenaline like the science, adrenaline, E D, oh. and he. And I told him I need to get this book. And this reminds me. He said, game-changing student engagement inspired by theme parks, (laughs) mud runs, and Mm. escape rooms. Oh, I that is so exciting. So there are a whole bunch of librarians that are doing things around the escape rooms, too. They are getting these, like, escape puzzle boxes and... In order to get the clue to unlock this lock, you have to answer this content question, and then you have. And when you get it, you have to answer another one in order to open another lock. And, oh, and we can do your open, library orientation that way. When you open all the locks, there is some sort of prize or something in it, and then for the group that does that really fast, there's also like an extension question of how to either help or stump other groups often. Oh, fun! Yes, library orientation, or even even an orientation to your to your room at the beginning of the year. Could you imagine mm-hmm. designing it as an escape room so that when you get the last lock, you get to leave the room at the end of the period? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you get the syllabus, I or mean, you get a your bathroom pass, or you get yes, uh, yeah, all those fascinating things. That'd be that'd be so much more interesting than sitting down and saying, "Let's read through the syllabus." Initial mm-hmm. here. Make sure your parents... I mean, it's like... So I Um, love that. I love this. these ideas that are sparking. And other people have monopolized on this, too. And you wrote something kind of in one of those as well. On page 88, in the can we turn the room into a giant opinion meter and have students move from one side to the other for a statement? Can we have them walk around? You've underlined those. And in the margin, you wrote give up control to gain control. And as we talked earlier, your bookends about the decisions that you make or letting your students oh. make them, here you're reminding us that sometimes as teachers, we need this to not just be our, my own personal space, but our space collectively. And so you're telling us, you're reminding us that if we give kids some choice and some decision-making ability. What do you agree with? Move to the corner. Who thinks this and who thinks that? That when we let them show their own opinions and we have a kid who passes back papers and a kid who wants to be the class clown so you make them the actor in your skit and then they're getting positive attention that way. When you're using it for positive and you're giving them little amounts of autonomy and control what you get is greater control of your lesson and content because they're willing to go deeper. It's the same with these experiences. And it calls to mind something else I was studying with social skills. And people say like, do you have time? How do you have time in your curriculum to teach Mm. those, you know, please and thank you gambits. And the fact that in discussion, I give them prompts and they're not allowed to say that was a stupid comment. They must say, I heard you say this, but what about that to highlight why they're questioning it rather right. than calling it stupid? And, you know, we, we can challenge an idea, but not a person. And I, I make that real clear. And we have that whole rules day. How do I have time to do that? Well, I have time to do that because if I don't do it, we're never really going to have the great discussion. And if I one day have the teaching lesson on the skills and I then embed them in there, the social skills help everything else run better and faster. Right. And Dr. Susan, 
reminded me, uh, he made a comment to a colleague at a, it was a college university professor who said he didn't have time um, to cover, you know, to do all that. And Dr. Seuss said to him, you don't need students to cover curriculum. It was it was a powerful moment because a lot of teachers, I think, we, we want so much control over the classroom so we can get through the curriculum. Mm-hmm. But what's the point in getting through the curriculum if nobody's there with you at the end? I think you marked that somewhere. I did, too. The one about receiving it. It's not It's not just about teaching it. It's about if they actually receive it. Correct. And if if my goal is at the end for them to, even poorly written objective, but to gain a better understanding. Well, you can't get a better understanding if you have no understanding, first of all. Um, but why would I want to understand something that I'm not enthusiastic about? Mm-hmm. Right? That I have no connection to. That is not memorable. Right? I, I remember I, w- I became fascinated in history when I was mentoring a teacher who talked with her students about trench warfare. And she had designed all sorts of experiences about getting them into the trenches. And I remember that. And, and I went, that's what World War One was about? Why can't somebody just show me that, right? That's exciting. When they line up the desks and put them between it and make them throw paper balls across at each other. <laughs> I love that lesson. I love that lesson. Right. It's lessons <laughs> like that that made me go, oh, I wish my history teachers had taught like this because I did not like history at all until I started working with, and not always young, but these dynamic teachers mm-hmm. who planned these experiences for her kids. Um, then I want to jump to the, the arts chapter because mm-hmm. I know you and I could spend forever on all of these. I love the long live the arts section. First of all, I'm passionate about these things. I've got a new love of art now mm-hmm. after working with some art students a couple years ago. Music, of course, I love. Dancing and drama. I love choreography and working with students um, in the dance industry when my daughter was young. But one of the markings that that you wrote in here that I like is that um, we want to make, and this is a, on page 99, uh, this helps to reinforce the value I place on their unique talents and allows them additional chances to see school as a place that encourages rather than stifles creativity. And you wrote, we want to make happy people who can think about the world around them, not robots. Mm-hmm. And wow, I mean, how, if we do the connections, right, if we make the connection between, as we have in the past podcast, that the effort that we put into lesson planning, we can reap the effort our students will put into learning, right? right? If we if we plan for, or we sow happy plans, we'll we reap happy students. And so I love this idea that, if creativity is really what will put our students in a position to have a job over an artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. or a computer, right? And yet we are so stripping the creativity from our students by Mm -hmm. driving through curriculum. And this reminds me of one of the big library programs. So in our county, we used to do Battle of the Books. Mm. which meant that you take the teen reads books at whatever your level is and and kids are asked to read those books and kind of become experts on them because they're going to battle against other school teams about their knowledge of the book. And so they have to memorize all kinds of very small little facts about the book to prove that they know it better than somebody else. And at the middle school level, these battles were so fierce that they, like, resulted in tears. 
And at the end of the day, what we've done is taken a kid who read and pretty much memorized 15 books and made them cry because they didn't memorize it better, you know, well enough. And there's such a missed opportunity there. Like, I love that they're reading those books and that they care so much, but why am I making them cry? So a couple years ago, our county shifted and said, we're not going to do that anymore. And the real heart of the field trip is now a showcase. You read a book, one of the teen reads books, you don't have to read Memorize All 15. And then instead of memorizing facts, you are asked for a creative expression about that book. Hmm. You can draw, you can create pottery, you can create music, you could make a movie trailer, you could reenact a scene, you could do anything you wanted. There, the categories are 3D art, 2D art, and digital animation. Whatever. They're, they are not highly specified intentionally. Right. Represent that book and tell us what it meant to you. Well, and I, I like the idea of just even having a conversation about books, mm-hmm. right? But it's more, now it's about the joy of reading, which is what I think the teen reads was all about to begin right. with, right? But How in, did this impact you? Yeah. <laughs> well, either either the character, the experience, mm-hmm. what, you know, did this book make you laugh or cry even? And just like our marginalia, what we do with those pieces is display them at the convention center as if they were true amazing works of art because they are yes and everyone who participated gets to go and look at the art of others so that we are valuing their contribution and what what the book said to me oh i didn't know that 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 character would look like that to you and let's have a conversation about it what if we did that? I mean, I could see that the one school, one book, right? With mm-hmm. the, if, if everybody did a different expression of it and put those up around as an art gallery. That would be amazing. Isn't I love it? it. And what we're doing is painting ceiling tiles. Largely, yeah. it, kids have other options. They have lots of options. But I encourage them to paint ceiling tiles. They draw out what they would like to paint from the book. And then once they've got it drawn out, I get on a ladder and get one of those old tiles down and we flip them over and prime it white and they draw it and paint it and I hang it and I hang it strategically so that The Hate You Give is by Angie Thomas. So in the T's on the bookshelf, the, the ceiling tile right above where that book is on the shelf is that artwork so that somebody can go, that book looks awesome. I want to read whatever that picture is from. Mm-hmm. And they can share and discuss that way. Oh, yeah. There's so many <laughs> There's so many things. I mean, just look at the titles, the subtitles in this section. They're so cool. Uh, I like to move it, move it. Yes. And that made me sing a song in my head while I read it. <laughs> the Picasso hook. I read it. The Mozart hook. Mm-hmm. Um, the dance and drama hook. The craft store hook. I love the craft store hook. It just... Mm-hmm. throwing things out there for kids to, to design something, you know. You're emphasizing an important word every time you read this, and that is hook. These are all the initial ways to get kids engaged in your content. They are not your lesson entirely. Right. They are the introduction to it. You know, if we're looking at the fishing analogy, hooking the fish is only one part of the battle you still have to reel the fish in you got all of that work to do right we are trying to bring them on this journey with us correct if you think of that cooking and cleaning as part of the journey not mm-hmm. not the actual right. experiences but but 
but it's the process, right? So the you know the bait and the fish become the content. And we got to reel them in. Becomes the pr- the process for learning. How I dis how I decide to eat the fish becomes the mm-hmm. product, right? All of that starts with a hook. Yeah. Right. Why do fish? Why do people love to fish, and why do people love to eat the fish that they because they've gone through the process, and they know. That this where this came from and the right. battle that it, it took was to so get it good to that I didn't plate. throw it back yeah. right and and now I can enjoy the I can reap the fruits of all of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the idea, and I think we had this conversation beforehand that um, I'm spending all this time doing this. Yes, why? Because I want my students to follow me. I want my students mm-hmm. to go through the journey with me. But that hook is going to look different for different kids. So I can't always use a music hook. Right. I can't always use a movement hook. Right. But I think the variety of hooks just in these two sections of the book, these two sure. chapters, will be extremely valuable. The last thing I want to put, stay on, this is page 100, and he said, you said, you underlined providing variety in the way students can access your curriculum and display their knowledge of it ensures you are reaching everyone. And you wrote over here on the left, which I saw was so valuable, half-done lesson plans from curriculum publishers have killed much of this teacher's need ownership. And I agree with you. I think that all of this requires purposeful planning. Mm-hmm. And the plans that publishers give us, whether it be the core curriculum that you, you've bought or the district curriculum mm-hmm. that has been provided, those are nice, but they don't do it. Even when they say, here's our essential understanding, and here's the text you're using, and here's the strategy you're using to teach it, and here's your embedded assessment. And you, even when they do all of that, the kids in my room are not the same as the kids in someone else's room. Correct. And I have to reach them differently. And not only that, that plan of all those things you just gave did not give me the steps for going from one to the other. Right. It may give me the essential understanding, but how am I going to communicate that to my students? And for mm-hmm. every decision that I don't make... The kids are making it. I'm abdicating it to someone else to make. Mm-hmm. And so who's going to own this lesson? Is it me as the teacher planning mm-hmm. it? Even right. given all those pieces, I still have to plan. Or is it me allowing mm-hmm. the students to take control and ruin it? And can I look at those pieces and figure out what hook is going to get my kids to want to do all of it? Correct. So many valuable things in this. That kind of takes us to the end. So what do we do now? So this marginalia has led to a very rich conversation and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So you have been given a sneak peek into the margin notes we have added. Tell us some of your own either in a two-minute or less voice memo or as part of our Twitter slow chat. Tell us what spot you underlined, what you wrote in the margin, and what you think about some of our margin notes. There will probably be things that Sylvia and I say that you want to disagree with, and there will probably be things that you want to agree with. In every podcast I listen to, sometimes I'm like, oh, that's so smart. And sometimes I'm going, no, that's, that's not why that author did that. And this means that. And we want to know what you think. Exactly. Let's make this text come alive and let's figure out how it lives in each of us. So until next time, have fun reading. Thank you.